We're continuing in Ruth chapter 1 today, so you can be turning there. And as you turn there, I'm going to tell you that I've been reading nails on a chalkboard all week. And if you're like me, that is pharisaical, by the Bible, religious person, black and white. I found out this week, the Bible tells us that life is messy. It's just messy. It's so messy that many times it does not appear to be black and white because we will have the Bible before us and we will have life before us and we would like to say that the mess out there can be fixed by just inserting the formula from the Bible in here into the, and from the Bible into the chaos and madness that is life and say, ta-da, problem solved. But it's not always like that, it seems like. Because what you and I are going to read today is going to be a link in the chain of the book of Ruth that is messy and 100% against the law. Just a few books back behind the book of Ruth. And what's going to happen in the entirety of this book of Ruth is the God who delivered that law is going to 100% unashamedly, unapologetically, and lavishly bless what appears to be this broken commandment. This... This life choice for Ruth and Naomi that is 100% black sheep, not okay in ancient Israel. That's what it appears. So you're welcome for this headache today. I'm glad to finally share it. Just as a reminder, though, as the mess that we find Naomi and Ruth in today, we recall last week that Naomi's husband Elimelech was merely a sinner, sinning in response to God's judgment to sin. Because from our first verse, we're going to see that God sent a famine to Israel. And this famine was meant to test his people to trust in him despite what's before their eyes. And Elimelech fails the test. And instead of trusting the creator to provide, he has trusted his creation, namely in Moab. A pagan, godless territory that no covenant-keeping Israelite should ever relocate to and live in. And Elimelech does that, and we're not told if it's more of God's judgment or if it's just Elimelech's sins playing out to their dastardly consequences, but he and his two Israelite sons die, so that all that's left in pagan, godless Moab is one Israelite named Naomi, and her two Moabite daughters-in-law who are also now widows. So that's the messy life we find ourselves in. As we pick up the story, I invite you to stand in honor of reading the Lord's Word. Stand this last time, please. We'll be in Ruth, chapter 1. We'll be reading verses 6 through 18. <clears throat> then she, that is Naomi, arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb, that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. 
If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake. But the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. Let's pray. Father, just a moment ago as I was praying in silence, I, I saw that story of Abraham wrestling with the angel. And my desire was for you to overpower us, that we do not want to strive against you, but we want to submit to you. So, Father, overpower us today with your word, with your grace, with your love, with your mercy, with your conviction. And, Father, by definition, in our submission, would we be active in the way we repent where it's necessary, in the way that we engage the world around us because of what you tell us today? Father, would you get me out of the way and say what you desire? And would you have been creating receptive hearts all week for this moment where you speak to us? Father, I bring nothing to the table. But you bring everything, and I'm grateful for that. We pray these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. We are a people or a society that loves clean slates, right? We, we put things on our record when we were young, restless and stupid, and we're disappointed every time it's brought up. We could have better car insurances without those lousy speeding tickets on our records or our wrecks. I know folks who get tired of being put, in, put on the registered sex offender when their offense was what they deemed to be minimal in their situation and place and time when they made that admitted mistake. And so society and culture, and especially the consumer culture, is a place that really capitalizes on selling redemption or reinvention. I wonder if on a personal level you've been there. There's been a few times in my life. The earliest I can remember is when I brought a tiny small souvenir pocket knife to school. And if you know me for any amount of time, I hope you know that I'm really not a violent man. I'm pretty laid back. So to bring my souvenir pocket knife to school in the second or third grade or whenever I did it was merely to show off to my friends, isn't this cool? Isn't this a nice knife? Well, one of my classmates did not see it as cool, and she was a better Pharisee than I was. So she went and told the recess teacher on duty, and in public school teacher language, Kevin has a knife, almost sounds as horrible as Kevin has a gun. And needless to say, I was in the principal's office before I knew it, and words like suspension was being tossed around, because I knew the rules, 
And I really did bring a weapon to school. No matter my intentions, rules are put in place to be followed, not broken. And the rule for bringing a weapon was suspension. And the Kamei School District doesn't really have, a, you know, two days for one-inch blades, five days for butcher knives. <laughs> Half a year if a kid brings a katana. It was just a suspension equals X amount of days for a weapon. I went home early that day. My mom was home telling me things like, well, when Dad gets home, we're going to have a talk with the principal. <coughs> and in the meantime, do you know what I was truly wholeheartedly considering? Running away. <laughs> Running away. Why? Because I was a good boy. And I was caught. Kind of in a way I, I still didn't fathom. And what, a, what a, amounted to me to be a cardinal sin, a religious nice goody two-shoes being caught. And I was that person, and I didn't want to be that person. I didn't want to be suspended, and, and I, I felt as innocent as my intentions truly were. But at the same time, I felt like a convicted criminal. And I wanted to start fresh. I wanted to start from square one. I wanted to start again and just all around not be in that place, in that mess, on the verge of suspension. Missing school, I already hated homework, but you, couldn't, you can't make up for missed work while you're suspended. It's just counted against you. I didn't run away. <laughs> but I can tell you every other time that I've been tempted to, to run away, whether it be in the smallest or the most serious, has been for that reason. I want a new identity. I want to start fresh, no charges against me. Or sometimes even accept the charges against me, but not be around for the repercussions or see the pain that I might cause. Naomi is in that mess. She can't run away. The damage has been done, and it's been done against her by Elimelech. But do you know what exists for Naomi in the middle of all this mess? Do you know what rises in the middle of all this damage, of all these sins, of this chaos and this madness? Verses 6 and 7 tells us, then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with, with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. Right where Naomi is at, hope rises do you need to hear that today? You've been lied to, I would say, by the culture that tells you that you can make your own new identity. That all you need is a nice hair job, a new pair of pants, a new job, a new location, a new city, a new set of friends, a new gender, or a new church, or a new whatever. You can exchange everything you have for everything new and still find that the problems never left. The problem is still there. Because the problem is within you, not outside of you. And for Naomi, hope is rising first and foremost in Moab. In the middle of the pile of sin that she's in, in large part thanks to Elimelech, hope is rising in this widow's heart in Moab with two Moabite daughters. And hope is in the form of God's kingdom. We see that the hope that she heard in the middle of Moab was not that semis were backing up into Moab with free food for widows. It was that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. I love that wording. 
I mean, if that's not a picture of Jesus, Jesus is the Lord visiting his people, giving them the bread of life. Living water, bread on the table. And it is the visitation of the Lord and providing for his people in the land of Judah, that is Israel, that is the hope for Naomi. And again, it's in Moab, and so my point is, is that Naomi didn't lift a finger. God showed up outside of her situation and brought hope. Naomi didn't run away first, she didn't go buy a new dress, she didn't try to remake herself, but outside of her, God came to her in the form of hope. And that's more promising than a clean slate. It's more promising that God can start with the mess that we've made in life and return us to him. It's more promising that you or I don't need to run away from our problems, run away and start again, but rather God can meet me in that principal's office and say, it is okay, take hope. I'm here. This word return in verse 6 is going to be a recurring same Hebrew word 12 times in this chapter. And this word is often used in Hebrew also for repent. And so the whole theme the rest of this chapter is that Naomi is returning to God's kingdom, Israel, physically and spiritually. She is returning to the headship of her God, truly her king. Whereas her earthly head, Elimelech, had led her astray from him, she is returning to the covenant community, whereas Elimelech had led her astray from that. Now we can look at this in two ways. We can give kudos to Naomi for doing the right thing, returning to the kingdom of God, but like you and like me, we often do the right things with the wrong motives. And wrong motivations are still sin. We sin in word, deed, thought, and motivations might be under the thought part. Look at the reason that our author gives us that Naomi is returning. There is food, again, in Israel, well, now's a good time as any to go back to Israel. There's food there, and the point being is if there were no food in Israel, if the famine was still there, would Naomi try her time in Moab more? We don't know. Give you a quick example. I'm in the Bible. I don't know if you noticed this. If you open up to the book of Proverbs and you read about a character named Sloth or an adjective, Slothful, that's me. So whenever I'm a youth pastor... At the Nazarene church, and an elderly couple asked me in the youth group to help them move out of their house because they were moving. Guess what I said? Yes. Why did I say it? Because I'm the youth pastor with the youth pastor hat, and I had to fight in my heart 70 times all over the slothful parts of me saying, you know, that's a lot of work, and you have better things to do on a Saturday. Don't let people in the church take advantage of your position, and don't let them take advantage of your kids. This is really going to kill your introversion, Kevin. And though I said yes and did the right thing, my motivation was primarily to live up to expectations, to be thought well of, and if they were even to think, you know, you can always rely on youth pastor Kevin, then my mission was accomplished. No glory to God, no act of obedience, all selfish motivation. And so it's rather interesting that the author of Ruth informs us, prior to Naomi returning, repenting, was this piece of information that seemed to at first compel Naomi to return. The famine was done, and now there was an abundance. And now for the first time, Naomi, in the book of Ruth, speaks. And if you have a study guide, or don't have a study guide that we have, there's still some left, I highly encourage you to read them. Because James Woolbright, in our studies, if you're reading along, 
pointed out this well. He made the point, and I want to reinforce the point. Listen to the first words of Naomi. In Hebrew literature, often the name of someone and the first words they speak are really a revelation of the type of the person they are. So Naomi's rising, taking hope, returning physically and spiritually to God's kingdom, and and if she's returning for selfish reasons, God's going to take her anyways, because he's that kind of God. And here is what she says, verses 8 and 9. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. Naomi is going to tell us, as we look at a verse next week, to not call her Naomi. Why? Because Naomi means pleasant. And we see the pleasantness. We see the pleasantness here in her words. Naomi, I have to agree with a few people that I've read and heard in preparing for this series. I believe Naomi gets an unfair reputation when the book of Ruth is read or preached. Because her entire character seems to be overshadowed by this episode in verse 20. When she tells the Bethlehemites, when she gets back, call me Mara, it means bitter, and that's me. We see here in the first verse, she speaks her pleasantness. That is her concern throughout the entire book of Ruth for her daughters-in-law, and then for Ruth specifically, to be settled, to have a husband, to be provided for. There is nothing bitter about that. There is nothing wrong about that. In fact, in our day and in that day and age, for Naomi to wish that about her newly widowed daughters-in-law, while she herself, Naomi, is widowed and penniless, and really shows that Naomi is outward and selfless thinking. It's really putting others in front of her. Because here is Naomi in the middle of a sinful mess, outside of the kingdom of God, not settled herself in a very restless situation. And the first time she speaks in the entire book is to say, I hope you too return to your childhood home, seek provision under your families while you still can, that you seek husbands so that you might be provided for. And what Naomi does not say, meanwhile, I'll return back to Bethlehem wearing the scarlet letter, the stupid wife who listened to her husband leaving the kingdom of God and went on a prodigal child outing, squandering our lives in pagan Moab. <laughs> you see, regardless of Naomi's own problems, which are many, she's concerned for her two daughters. The first words out of her mouth, which you and I can agree with even from experience, reveals the thing that's on her mind and on her heart. And that is for her daughter's to find rest, not for she to find rest. And in fact, this book, I told you last week, features Naomi more than it does Ruth. But it's called Ruth because Naomi wants Ruth to be married. Naomi is not seeking for her own rest, but for Ruth's. But here now, we also consider the life situation that's really messy that I began to warn you about. From the earliest times reading or I should say loving this book, Ruth, there has really been a big bother for me in this whole episode returning to Bethlehem. I used to be really bothered by Naomi urging these Moabite women to return to Moab because the evangelical within me says, no, what are you doing, Naomi? Bring these people with you to the covenant kingdom. Introduce them to God. They need saving. You're basically saying, don't come with me, just go back and find pagan men and live dark pagan lives. 
I was really bothered that Naomi is just more than okay invoking the name of God to bless these Moabite women to continue living Moabite lives. However, studying for this series and studying primarily last week has now reversed the conundrum for me. Because listen to a verse that I, I should say a few verses that I gave you last week in Deuteronomy 23. The law of God says no Amorite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the tenth generation, none of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever. Because they did not meet with you bread and with water on the way when you came out of Egypt. And because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor, from Pethor of Mesopotamia, to curse you. But the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam. Instead, the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loved you. You shall not seek their peace or their prosperity all your days forever. So now, now it's reversed for me. There is a part of me that wants to paint Naomi as a more obedient Israelite than Elimelech. And maybe she's abiding by this law. That would make things simple for me, that Naomi is really discouraging these women politely because she knows if she returns to Bethlehem with two Moabites, not only will she have to answer for her sins of leaving Israel in the first place, but then she will be carrying with her two Moabites, according to this law, are forbidden to be in community with God's covenant people. And since that law would probably be distasteful to the average Moabite, I mean, this is why Naomi is not saying, Oh, Orpah, Ruth, that's so nice, you want to go with me, but you're cursed where we come from, and I wish you no peace and impoverishment forever, good riddance. Naomi doesn't want to do that. Naomi could be fudging a little bit, and in a nice, I won't tell you what my religion says about you sort of way, wants to say goodbye and discourage any Moabites returning with her where they weren't allowed. Now that's part of me. <laughs> the realistic part of me returns to Ruth 1.1 where we were told that this is the time of the judges, a time where there was really no acknowledgement of God's kingship, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes, which if you didn't know in simple terms, that means everyone is selfish. We have big words today like moral relativism, but that's just taking a lot of words to say people should be selfish and not care about it. That's the kind of nominal religion that Naomi knows. So if I had to guess and stake a bet on it, I'm betting that Naomi doesn't have a care about her daughters being Moabites. And she sincerely wants them to stay in Moab and find men and live successful lives and worship Moabite gods. Because though Naomi is returning to Israel, in that day and age, the kind of God went with the land sort of thing. And Naomi is certainly not an evangelical. She's in Old Testament Judaism where only Israelites could be part of Israel. So what you're witnessing in this exchange are three sad women talking about their lives. And I'm more convinced by scripture that Naomi is unaware of the law prohibiting Moabite fellowship, which is no surprise since during the time of the judges. Because in fact, she calls upon and she invokes God's name, the same God who made that law, Namely, to not wish peace or seek the prosperity of any Moabite. She uses that God and says, May the Lord deal kindly. Put them in a state of peace. May the Lord grant rest. The idea of seeking rest for the remainder of the book, meaning be settled, find a husband. So ultimately, the exact opposite of the law, 
Naomi is invoking God's name to give provision and prosperity for these Moabites in the house of Moabite husbands, nonetheless. And so to add to your headache, for the one Moabite that comes with Naomi, God is going to do just that. For a Moabite, yes indeed, a person from Moab, Moab in which God has stated in his law to forever not allow them into the assembly or wish peace or prosperity on. Why and how does God do that, you might ask. Right now I'll just tell you because he's just that kind of God. We continue in verse 10. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way. For I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. We see in here again these verses, really the humble and what seems to be the innocent desire of Naomi that she just wants these two gals to have a life. She's not too familiar with the details of the law. She probably knows that Moabites may not be generally accepted. Men would probably be thought unclean for marrying foreigners. But I sincerely believe at the heart of pleasant Naomi is just what she says. She wants them to have lives. She wants them to be settled. She wants them to grow old, have babies, have families, leave legacies. And true to the time of the judges, when it comes down to Naomi, her heart is in the right place, but it's with the wrong action. And what I mean by that is that she wishes these Moabites well in Moab, ignorant of the fact that she's wishing them well in a land cut off from God. And despite her ignorance in that area, I cannot falter I can actually say, well, for a nominally law-understanding Israelite, Naomi is rather pleasant as far as she's able to be. This is like a five-year-old girl who wants to make dinner for her mommy. And so then she wrecks the kitchen doing it. (laughs) Her heart is in the right place. She just did the wrong action. She She made a mess, but her heart was right. Do you catch my illustration? I believe Naomi's heart was right, but she wasn't thinking like any of them. She wasn't thinking through the spiritual implications. But as for material implications, Naomi would think, probably like any of us, your best route in this situation is to return to all that's familiar and start again, because all your best prospects are there. I want to pause, though, and look at verse 13. Closer as well. Because Naomi is bringing God into the picture again. She first brought him into the picture today to invoke his name and doing something that seems 100% contrary to the law in Deuteronomy. Naming, wishing prosperity on Moabites and wishing them peace. But Naomi is going to invoke God in a way that doesn't sound like Naomi. It doesn't sound pleasant. It's really the same thing she's going to say later on in chapter 1 to the rest of the Israelites when she returns to Bethlehem. It's, It's really what I think many folks reading the book of Ruth will pinpoint their opinion of Naomi on. Her theology and her thoughts about God and her at this place and time. Naomi seems to say here, don't follow me back. God's angry at me, and you'll just get tossed into the proverbial flood that I'm drowning in right now. Right? I'm living in Sodom and Gomorrah. I don't want you to get hit with raining sulfur and fire. So don't join me. She says in verse 13, my daughters, 
For it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And I want you to see that it, what appears to be a bleak picture of God coming from the lips of Naomi is actually honesty, and ultimately it is hope. And how can I say that? What location and what time is Naomi saying this? Because this is very crucial to understanding her statement here. She is saying this on the road back to Bethlehem, to God's kingdom, to return into the kingdom of God. And so, what does this mean? This means that despite the brutal honesty of what she feels is happening, namely that God's hand is out against her, she is submitting to it. Now, I'm not going to sugarcoat or apologize for God here. Is God's hand against her? Well, I believe that God was not pleased with Elimelech moving to Moab in the first place. I believe that God did bring famine to Israel as a means to try to shake them from their complacency. And what better way to take their food and say, will you trust whenever you still can't see what's going to provide for you? Elimelech's answer was no. Naomi was with Elimelech. They went away. And Naomi ended up with no providers anyways because Elimelech and his two sons died. My take is here that Naomi is accepting God's hand, even if she thinks it's bitterly against her. And my evidence for that is that she's on the road back to Bethlehem. If she was upset with God so much that she wanted nothing to do with him, she wouldn't be going back. She's just being honest about her feelings, beyond if she's right that God is disciplining her, or that God has punished her and her family. We can all agree that even if she's wrong about that, she is right about God's providence. She is right to say that God overrules events and to accept God's discipline while returning to his kingdom is really a show of trust and hope. In her despair, she's confessing the hope that God's been bitter against me, but I've not died yet. God still has something in store for me, and I'm willing to see what it is. You know, there's another story, there's another woman in the Bible in which God revealed that the Lord was visiting to provide for his people, and the practical implications for this woman was going to be scorn, rebuke, and a hard walk. Her name is Mary. And the angel's revealing of Jesus meant for Mary that she would appear pregnant without a husband, that she would carry with her for her life the mark of an adulterer or a fornicator, that she would face the scrutiny of her parents, her husband-to-be, of her community. And though she didn't voice like Naomi, this is something God's doing to me as punishment, like Naomi had said this on the way to Bethlehem to be scorned for her actual partaking in sins. So Mary resigned to the will of God and said, let it be to me according to your word. And then she too went to Bethlehem. Naomi's pleas with her daughters are heeded by one. But we're told in verse 14 that they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And Naomi said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. <clears throat> Ruth sounds like the Hebrew word for friend. And she is one stubborn friend here. In fact, this word clung is the exact same word and picture in Genesis 2.24 when a man clings to his wife. And the author of the book is likely illustrating the commitment of Ruth to Naomi with such a memorable word referring to marriage. 
Now, don't hear me wrong. It would be a long, heretical, distorted road to say, well, the Bible says one woman clung to another. Pastor Kevin says it's the same word used in the marriage verse, so the Bible says homosexuality is okay. No. <laughs> I would say that there were other things mentioned in Genesis 2 about marriage that Ruth and Naomi do not do. But they love each other in a committed way. But rather also, the author paints this beautiful picture of a friend so unwilling to depart ways with her mother-in-law that she will instead depart ways with everything she's ever known to be with her. She illustrates it here when she says, But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more, if anything, but death parts me from you. The wedding language continues as Ruth makes vows here. It's okay to make vows of platonic friendship. But I would also say, if you want to look at this book in a literary, literary way, literature, the author is using wedding language because not only does it describe the friendship here between a mother and a daughter-in-law, but the book is going to lean into and climax on a wedding between a man and a wife, Boaz and Ruth. So this wedding language is a foreshadow in disguise as well as moving the plot along about this friendship. And what's interesting here is I think it speaks into the dilemma that I gave you earlier. Namely, life is messy, and what's happening here in Ruth, coming back with Naomi, seems 100% contradictory to a law about Moabites mingling with Israelites, because I'm assuming that Naomi didn't recall, more likely was unaware about this law. But even if she did, and even if she mentioned it to Ruth, Ruth is in essence saying here, fine, I won't be a Moabite, I'll be an Israelite then. Like, can you do that? <laughs> this is scandalous. It reminds me when snarky religious people approach Jesus with a scenario and say, now wiggle yourself out of this one. So the proverbial scenario is pop quiz, Jesus. A wayward Israelite family goes to Moab. The men die, leaving one Israelite mom and two Moabite daughters-in-law. The Israelite mom decides to return to Israel, but one Moabite worms her way into coming back which by the law, Israelites aren't supposed to be in community with Moabites, so do we throw stones to Moabite? And Jesus is responding, that's easy, the Moabite becomes an Israelite. Didn't see that one coming. <laughs> that seems impossible. Well, how does this work? Now, am I saying that Ruth can contradict her own biology and her own bloodlines and identify as an ethnic Jew and be validated? When Ruth is saying, fine, I won't be a Moabite, I'll be an Israelite, Ruth is merely stating that she's leaving all that it means on the outside to be a Moabite and accept all that it means on the outside to be an Israelite. I would endeavor to say that Ruth is returning to Bethlehem on the promise of faith in a God that she doesn't know how he will respond and that is, by definition, so Paul tells us, the grounds of conversion. Abraham believed, and it was credited to him as righteousness. This is, in fact, what we express in our own conversion. When we say, I trust Jesus' sacrifice for my sins, 
That means we are exchanging all the outside facts of ourselves. Namely, we are fallen, sinful human beings. We have Moabite written all over us. And we instead declare by our mouth and by our minds that Jesus' righteousness is now my righteousness because I have accepted him. I have trusted in him. I have declared my allegiance to him. And that moves us into right standing. That moves us into the proverbial Israel, the people of God. Does that make sense? Ruth has moved from Moabite to Israelite, not ethnically, but spiritually by faith. We move from citizen of darkness to citizen of God, not ethnically, because it's not an ethnical situation, but by faith. You see that. The author of Hebrews tells us in chapter 11 that faith is the evidence of things unseen. And that every major character found righteousness, that is right standing in God by faith, and what they did not see, which Hebrews 12 reveals to us, Jesus, the revelation and the incarnation of the God they believed in. And I have to believe that when the author of Hebrews 11, going through the Old Testament people, and then says in verse 32, a catch-all phrase, What more shall I say, for time would fail of me to tell, and he lists off a few more names of the Old Testament briefly, that an unspoken but nevertheless relevant name is Ruth, who by faith entrusted in the God of Israel to provide for Naomi and she when they returned to Bethlehem. So what do you think? Does God accept her? Or did Ruth outwit God? <laughs> did God have his law, namely no Boabites, don't wish them peace, don't wish them prosperity, don't do life with them, and here comes Ruth. Philly, I'll be an Israelite if I want to be an Israelite. I'm sticking to Naomi whether she wants it or not. Her people are my people. Her house is my house. And whether he likes it or not, her God is my God. But I have to laugh because the last verse says, And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go, she said no more. Those last words are translated in a reverent way, so rightly so. But the actual wording is curt, like she stopped talking to her. And that to me just paints a new picture. Like Naomi says, whatever, Ruth, I'm done with you, tag along. Right? I tried God, I know the law, but she's just stubborn, she's coming with me. But this is where it's messy. Now, let me be the first to tell you that I'm not a big fan of calling the world messy and calling grace messy. And at this point in time, and I think always, I believe that many pastors and preachers might do grievous sinful error in preaching that the world is messy and grace makes up for the times we let sin slide by. And that's not what I'm saying. What's beautiful for me in this story is that this story is so us. Naomi isn't thinking about God, really other than using his name to bless Moabites and feeling like God's judging her. Ruth is naive and doesn't know a thing about God or his law, but she wants in. And God's going to take her. God's going to bless Naomi and her. God's not denying his law or overlooking it. Now, for those of you like me who need a Bible verse to finagle God out of what seems to be a contradiction, like he really needs our help, Here's what I got. Leviticus 19, 33-34 says, When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you. You shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So this is probably Boaz's life verse. <laughs> or it seems to be the way he treats Ruth. And so some of you might say, 
Well, then apparently that chunk of Deuteronomy is an exception. <laughs> that, that Israel is supposed to treat all foreigners and sojourners as friends, but when it comes to the Amorites and the Moabites, and I would say, let us, as Jesus did, differentiate between the letter and the intent of the law, or I should say the letter and the heart or the spirit of the law. And I am not using this as wiggle room, because this comes right from the Bible. I'm using this phrase as Jesus did. Jesus said over and over in the gospel accounts when the Pharisees were angry with Jesus because he healed on the Sabbath or people ate and worked on the Sabbath or his disciples didn't wash and follow the customs or when Jesus amplified the law on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus was always concerned with the heart. Jesus quotes Isaiah in Mark 7 as he's talking to Pharisees. And he said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites as it is written this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And so what Jesus is saying, if you really want to know God's law, you need to have God's and what does God's heart say when a Moabite who has publicly professed to desire to throw off all that it means to be a Moabite and become an Israelite, God's heart says, come, you are invited. By your faith and your trust in me, you are no longer a Moabite. You are a child of God. And the law remains not transgressed. Is that not the gospel? Because I don't know about you, but the Bible says we all fall short of the glory of God. And that every one of us may not be breaking that Moabite law, but we are breaking another law that puts us in the same dire straits that Ruth could be in. Cut off from the kingdom of God, cut off from the land of the living, dead in our sins and trespasses. But all we do is say, I throw off all that it means to be a sinner. I profess to, that I put my faith, hope, and trust in God. That I will serve God, put my faith in him that my sins are forgiven through him. And Jesus overlooks the letter of the law, namely our track record that says guilty, and his heart says, come, you are invited. By your faith and your trust in me, you are no longer a sinner and a child of the world. You are a child of God. Naomi arose and left Moab for God's people, for she had heard that the Lord provided food. Jesus arose and left heaven for earth to provide food for his people. Naomi found hope right in the middle of her sinful circumstances. Jesus is the hope that comes to us in the middle of our sinful circumstances. Naomi wishes kindness and prosperity to the Moabites that they might have families. Jesus is kindness and prosperity to all people and grafting them into the family of God. Ruth clings to Naomi, forsaking all that she's ever known in her home. Jesus clings to us, forsaking all that he's accustomed to in heaven. Ruth follows Naomi on the road to the kingdom of God. Jesus also calls us to follow him on the road to the kingdom of God. Ruth declares that Naomi's people and her God will be her people and God, so God declares that though those who believe in him through Jesus, we will be his people and he will be our God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I'm grateful that you don't show favorites. That there are 
snarky religious people like me that open up your word and think I know better than you do. Father, you beckon us today to have your heart, which is why you tell us in Mark 7 that out of the heart of man comes every evil thing. You tell us in Jeremiah that the heart of man is so evil, who can understand it? But then you tell us in Ezekiel 30 that you will give us a new heart, a soft heart. Father, thank you for giving us that heart. We're grateful for the story of the gospel in Ruth. Father, that you receive everyone who wants to be a part of your kingdom. That you will become the sacrifice of their sins in order to bring them into your kingdom. Because your heart is love. It doesn't overlook judgment, but your love is stronger than judgment. So, Father, for those of us today who still wrestle with not feeling good enough to be a part of your kingdom, would you remind us again today that you have received us, that you are working in us? Father, would you give us that heart to reach out to others around us? Father, we're grateful for all you do. We're grateful that you are hope in the middle of situations that seem hopeless. And we're grateful that you are a redeemer in a situation that seems unredeemable. We're grateful for all of this, and we pray all these things, praying that you would send us away with these words engrafted onto our heart and being spoken from our lips. Pray all this in your Son's name. Amen.